Welcome back to the Blockchain Podcast. I am your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Bill Stebbins. Thanks for joining me today. Today, we're going to talk about Nakamoto's Bitcoin confronts Occam's Razor. We're going to look at what Bitcoin must do now in this phase of the Bitcoin insurgency. Well, thanks for joining me today. We're going to take a look at Bitcoin as a phenomenon. From its inception to now, focusing on now, where does it go from here? What is the state doing? How is the state regarding Bitcoin? How does it comprehend what Bitcoin brings to the table and what Bitcoin means? And here is my bottom line up front. This is the result of my analysis. With FedNow's birth in CBDC, central bank digital currency, right on the near horizon, my assessment is that if Bitcoin is prevented from quickly implementing a permissionless, widely adopted, and therefore unstoppable medium of exchange functionality, then it risks the state isolating it in cyberspace. In other words, we love the fact that Bitcoin is a tremendous, untouchable store of value, unlike saving your money in a bank, for example. But store of value means nothing unless that which is stored can be used, unless you can ultimately use that thing that you're storing. And so I think at some point what's going to occur is the state starts understanding the essence of Bitcoin. That as the state understands that it can't kill, it can't destroy Bitcoin, well then it looks for other choke points. What can it do to preempt it, to cause its defeat without killing it? And in this regard, if it quarantines Bitcoin in, in cyberspace such that its users can never have access to it, it ultimately wins. It doesn't need to destroy it. Bitcoin will die a, a, a wasting death isolated in cyberspace. And I think that this is the realization that the state will quickly come to. It's not there yet. But I think that this is the inevitable conclusion that it will reach. The interesting thing is that as a career military planner, as a strategist, as a veteran of the counterinsurgency war in Iraq, when I started looking at Bitcoin and really started digging into it about two years ago, it really struck me that the whole Bitcoin phenomenon was very much like an insurgency. And so looking through the paradigm of insurgent warfare really informed how I viewed Bitcoin's movements, its emergence, its growth, its adoption by the populace because its ideas really resonated with people worldwide. It looked to me like a classic insurgency. And so I used this lens the lens of insurgent warfare, to analyze Bitcoin more deeply. I would argue that if you don't look at it 
in that way, you're missing part of the issue. You, you're missing very important aspects of the problem, of the operating environment. You'll be missing, you won't have the ability to understand or maybe to forecast what the state is going to do next with regard to Bitcoin, which is very important for us to know. We, we want to know what the state is going to do as Bitcoin holders. Unfortunately, a large number of Bitcoin adherents and enthusiasts, podcasters, etc., you can't fault them, but many of them view the situation with rose-colored glasses. They think that there will be some manner of reproachment, some manner of symbiosis between the fiat state and the Bitcoin space, that somehow the state will allow a cohabitation with Bitcoin, that it won't ultimately get confrontational, that the SEC will back off to a degree and be sensible, that legislation will come about, that will be reasonable and allow Bitcoiners to continue holding Bitcoin, holding their keys, and not being overly interfered with by the state. Regrettably, I, I don't hold to that. As a military planner, I often gravitate to the worst-case scenario. I analyze the worst-case scenario, and then I can work backwards from that position. I don't like to immediately embrace a more optimistic viewpoint up front. I think that the state will view this as warfare, even though Bitcoiners don't want it to be contentious. We don't want to overthrow the state. That's not in our intention. We don't want to dismantle all the financial institutions of the United States. This is not our objective at all. Uh, but this, I would remind you that in the War for American Independence, in the beginning, when the colonists were very disenfranchised and frustrated and disgusted with the policies of King George III and his ministers in Whitehall, the vast majority of them had no interest in separating from the crown. George Washington wanted to continue being a British subject. He didn't want to separate. But as the state in this case, the monarchy, was implacable in looking at the, at the grievances of the colonists, it became impossible for the two sides to coexist in a harmonious relationship. And so I look at the inception and emergence of Bitcoin in phases I like to break it into phases of a military operation. The first phase is the inception of Bitcoin. In most insurgencies, if you study them historically, experience an initial phase where the, the dominant power, the state, is oblivious to the emergent antagonist in its midst. For example, in our nation's history, 
There was a period of time where King George was blissfully unaware that his policies and the arrogance of his ministers and how they're dealing with the colonists had sparked, had ignited an insurgency in the colonies. He had no idea. Well, likewise, the Bitcoin insurgency was sparked in response to the disastrous 2007 housing market implosion and then the ensuing 2008 financial collapse, which had global repercussions. And this anonymous person or group of folks, whoever it was, Satoshi Nakamoto, unveiled the idea of this revolutionary monetary protocol that would correct the egregious shortcomings of of the fiat monetary system. And then in 2009, shortly thereafter, after he unveiled the concept, as the Great Recession continued to deepen, he then activated that coat and initiated, it gave birth to the first 50 Bitcoins in the Genesis block. But at this point, very, very few folks took notice of this. We then moved into phase two. This is the phase of accelerating support, the fire of Bitcoin spreading. In this next phase in historic insurgent warfare, it occurs usually when the ideas of the disenfranchised, uh, it gains traction with the populace, the message gets out and finds receptive ears. We would see proof of this in the last half of 2020 where the price of Bitcoin topped $65,000. It was clear at that point that Bitcoin's popularity and value had accelerated. And during this phase, the fiscal conditions that had initially annoyed and inspired and infuriated Satoshi persisted, of course. The fiat monetary system continued to be in, in power, so of course those conditions will still prevail. And so what that means is that there is further kindling. There is a never-ending stream or supply of kindling for the fire of those annoyed at the effects of the fiat monetary system. There is a receptive audience for those preaching the orange message. And that orange message speaking to the the value of decentralized hard money as as an alternative to the sick state of fiat currency. And even in this phase, as more and more people jumped on the Bitcoin train, realizing its importance and potential value, well, the lumbering colossus of the state still remained oblivious. Uh, Bitcoin was still too small to cause the state to take notice. That brings us now to phase three, which is where I think we are at this point. We, we are in a distinctly new and, and profoundly critical phase of the life of Bitcoin, of this conflict, if you would want to put it in terms of a conflict. It's Bitcoin's accelerating global popularity has pinged the state's radar. The the state is absolutely taking notice now. We have political candidates like JFK Jr. um, discussing it. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy discussing it. 
We have most large investment firms like BlackRock vying for spot Bitcoin ETFs. We have an entire nation, El Salvador, having already declared Bitcoin legal tender. China resumed Bitcoin mining after first trying to outlaw it. There's just so many examples week after week after week that demonstrate that states are taking notice of Bitcoin. And so we could say that Bitcoin has hit that threshold. It's hit that tipping point. It has captured state attention. King George Redux is semi-aware that he has some manner of insurgency on his hands now. Again, this is how the state is going to view it, as an insurgency, even though Bitcoiners wouldn't want it to be viewed that way. We want it to be just another alternative means of storing wealth and living our lives. But the state, in my assessment, is going to see Bitcoin's permissionless, uncontrollable essence being a threat or being perceived as a threat is a monetary challenger antithetical to a state ever intent on increasing surveillance and control over its residents. And so simultaneous with the exploding popularity of Bitcoin, what we see now is the state's already pre-planned move Now, this isn't as a result of Bitcoin, but understanding Bitcoin's importance probably accelerated the state's actions in this regard. We have a one-two punch. The first is FedNow. FedNow, which is an instant payment, and I would say a surveillance infrastructure. FedNow has been advertised to the masses the uninformed masses, because folks generally don't understand FedNow, it's being sold to them as an unprecedented transactional convenience, that this will make transaction clearing wildly convenient. And that's true. But more importantly, what does FedNow do? It establishes the prerequisite monetary plumbing, the pipes, if you will, within which the second enslaving innovation will flow. And of course, I'm talking about CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. FedNow is the plumbing. CBDC is the poisoned water that's going to flow in the pipes. CBDC is the next evolutionary development to a cashless surveillance state. And you can just look at China. You can look at news out of China and see how that manifests itself in a surveillance state, to get an idea of what we can expect. CBDC is the digital dollar, if you will, which is the state's anxiously sought-after checkmate on personal privacy, personal wealth, personal freedom, and sovereignty. All of those things represent a threat to a centrally planned, controlling state that continues to amass power. The state is very excited about CBDC because they see it as the tool that will most effectively force the people's compliance. See, legislation is difficult. Having to work through the legislative process 
as our founding fathers through the Constitution established, that's difficult and it's not a sure bet. But when you control the currency, when you have a programmable money like CBDC, now you can bypass legislation, you can bypass the legislative process, and you can immediately start enforcing compliance. Programmable and providing seamless surveillance of financial activity, it will allow comprehensive financial neutering of any deemed enemy of the state. In other words, in in the cashless world of CBDC, the state will suddenly have the unconstitutional power to preemptively and unaccountably, without the bother of legislation, block any private transactions it wishes. For example, firearms, ammunition, meat, transportation, fossil fuels, any number of things that the state wants you not to purchase or wants certain individuals not to be able to purchase, including the purchase of Bitcoin. But in fact, I anticipate that they will go further than just simply blocking Bitcoin purchases. The state will block the purchase of electronic wallets, apps that that give you a wallet, nodes, internet access, even electricity for miners. In other words, as the state begins to realize that it can't kill, it can't destroy Bitcoin, well then the next logical strategic development will be to execute FedNow CBDC transaction blocking, as well as selective internet denial. And what that will do is isolate Bitcoin in cyberspace, causing Bitcoin to die isolated on the cyberspace vine. So this brings us to the English philosopher William of Ockham, He lived from 1270 to 1347, and he has this famous principle you may have heard of, Occam's Razor. And there's many different ways to express Occam's Razor. Let me give you one way. One way is that the the more exceptions that you have for anything, the more exceptions that you have for a rule or for a system or for a device, the more exceptions that occur well, then the more insubstantial or ineffective that rule, system, or device is. Now, how can I explain this? Let's just say a contractor in the military-industrial complex comes forward and says, you know what, I have the greatest weapon in modern history. It's the most powerful, most effective weapon in modern history. Okay, let's take it out to the range, demonstrate this weapon. Let's see how powerful it is. And so the contractor takes the weapon out to show what it can do. And then what we find is, well, it's the most powerful weapon ever, but it can't be employed at night. It's the most powerful, most effective weapon ever. Uh, But it, it malfunctions in the rain from time to time. It's the most powerful weapon ever, but it requires extensive maintenance. It can't be exposed to dust. Its ammunition is highly volatile and has to be specially handled and transported. This weapon is so powerful, it's so tremendous, well, but it requires extensive prolonged operator training. Finally, 
The weight of this weapon requires two people to carry it. It can't be carried by one infantryman on the battlefield. Well, were this the case, in the light of the many exceptions and caveats to its, its performance, what you couldn't do is say that, in fact, this is the most powerful, most effective weapon ever. It doesn't live up to its billing. Such a weapon would be profoundly unimpressive. So what does this principle, what does Occam's razor mean for Bitcoin? Nakamoto's amazing creation is regaled as an alternative monetary solution to the sick fiat system. It is a tremendous monetary weapon, in other words. It remedies the diseases of fiat currency. So you might compare it to a monetary super weapon vying for dominance on the ravaged fiat battlefield. But does Bitcoin have a number of caveats, a number of exceptions, which would nullify its potential, which would neutralize its effectiveness? Will Bitcoin live up to its billing as the monetary war unfolds? Well, to look at that, to to analyze that, we'll look at something called decisive points. U.S. military doctrine describes this concept of decisive points. And so in joint publication 1-02, a decisive point is a geographic place, a specific key event, critical system, or function that, when acted upon, allows commanders to gain a marked advantage over an enemy or contribute materially to achieving success. That's a decisive point. So in this clash between fiat and Bitcoin, what decisive points must be acted upon to contribute materially to Bitcoin's success? In looking at this, we'll be able to see if there are some caveats, some exceptions lurking in the Bitcoin wake that might make Bitcoin vulnerable to Occam's razor. And so in this third phase of the insurgency, where state anti-Bitcoin tactics are even now emerging and starting to clash with with a a term that that exists right now, hyper-Bitcoinization, we see two interrelated decisive points that must be acted upon for Bitcoin to avoid state cyber quarantine. I think there are two decisive points. Number one, the first decisive point is a function. This function is medium of exchange. Bitcoin must fully develop its medium of exchange functionality. Number two, the second decisive point is a critical system, and that's the Internet. Access to the Internet must be assured. So let's look at the first decisive point, the medium of exchange functionality. In this functionality, we have two imperatives. The first one is that Bitcoin must have re-entry mechanisms back into the fiat world. In other words, until such time as sufficiently extensive Bitcoin-only transactional rails are established, look, Bitcoiners will need to occasionally exchange Satoshis for local currency for dollars and the conduct of life. 
Now, over time, these mechanisms, these reentry mechanisms back into the dollar may grow less important, but now they're very important. I have to be able to, you have to be able to, at times, cash in some of your Bitcoin, transform it from Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar to conduct life, to handle life exigencies. But the second decisive point along these lines, a second medium of exchange functionality, are Bitcoin-only transactional rails. In other words, merchants that will accept Bitcoin. So you don't have to transfer it into U.S. dollars or any fiat currency. A decentralized transactional architecture would be numerous, an ideal one, or an ideal system of these would be numerous, redundant, overlapping, and globally propagated. And that would make them unstoppable. Similar to how FedNow serves as the plumbing for CBDC, these Bitcoin-only rails would provide the transactional plumbing for Bitcoin. Now, these potential Bitcoin rails, for example, like the Lightning Network, that's an example of what I mean by transactional rails. Bitcoin rails, like Bitcoin itself, they must be decentralized and they must be permissionless. The th- one of the things that makes Bitcoin so powerful is its permissionlessness. It was created in internet autonomy, absolutely without state permission, and keeps replicating in uncontrollable autonomy. Well, this permissionlessness must also be replicated in its medium of exchange trans- transactional rails. Otherwise, Bitcoin's potential to store value will be neutralized. In other words, what do I mean by that? If a stored object of value is unable to be brought out of storage for application to life, then the object's actual value is but a mirage. Or, let's put it another way, if you have a treasure chest of gold safely secured, on an uncharted island only known to you. But you can never get there. You can never access that island again. Well, your treasure chest is absolutely worthless. At some point, I have to be able to get to my treasure chest and somehow use it, whether it's using gold with merchants or transferring the gold into fiat to use it. But it has to be permissionless. It can't be something, these rails can't be something that the state can block. And so decisive point number two, I call Assured Internet Access, AIA. This second decisive point will contribute materially to achieving success. It's assured access to the internet. The internet resides in cyberspace. Cyberspace is Bitcoin's sanctuary. But we have to have unimpeded access to this realm. If the state can block coin access or block or control Bitcoin transactional rail access to the blockchain in cyberspace, well, it will have succeeded in neutralizing Bitcoin relevancy.
It would be as if the state confiscated your private keys. It would have the same effect. You can't gain access to it anymore. And if other fiat states joined in and started using the same strategy to protect their fiat currency system, well, then Bitcoin's value would almost certainly plummet. Occam's razor would defeat Nakamoto's Bitcoin. And so it's not enough to have an untouchable, incredibly secure sanctuary for Bitcoin's existence. But Bitcoin must likewise have an untouchable, permissionless series of tentacles for Bitcoin's activity. It has to be able to be usable in the world. Again, whether that's reentry vehicles into fiat currency or the propagation of a web, a network of redundant Bitcoin-only transactional rails that the government can't block. For example, let's say you came up with a transactional rail. Uh, we'll call it the Nakamoto Exchange. And merchants around the globe started tying into the Nakamoto Exchange. And you could go buy groceries with Bitcoin using the Nakamoto Exchange. You could buy cars, etc., But if it required permission, if it required government licensing, government regulation, government permission, then again, the government could say no and could block it or make it prohibitively expensive to even use. That would not be a solution. It has to be a permissionless, untouchable network of transactional rails. This is an absolutely critical, decisive point. So thank you for joining me today and spending a little time with me thinking about Bitcoin, thinking about the future, thinking about how the adoption, the use, the progression of Bitcoin currency might evolve over time and what our actions might be what things we might have to uh, be wary of, be concerned of, etc. So I appreciate your time. Please share this podcast with others that you think might find it of value. And until the next time, protect your keys.